So of all the Gospels, Mark is the most fast-paced, just moving so rapidly from one scene to the next, almost just, just frenetic and just, just, just moving and, and just, just changing and chasing this story. And I think that's perhaps why the Gospel of Mark resonates so strongly with me. You know, many times I'll leave this stage on a Sunday morning and those, those that are close to me will say, dude, you get up there and it's like you feel like you must tell us every single word you know about that text and you must all get it in today. Like you don't think we're going to invite you ne back next week. Yes. Yes. Dear friends, I don't know how many more days we have. I don't know how many more days we have. And so today, while it is still day, with everything that is within us, we must empty ourselves completely and wholly. Everything that we have must be just poured out on the table as a living sacrifice before God and say, into your hands, I entrust all that I have. And if you have me back tomorrow, you have me back next week, I trust God's going to have another word for you then. There's no point in storing up my own words because you don't need my words. I view this personally like almost the flushing of a line. You see, there's so much junk built up within me that the more I can fill myself with God's word by the power of God's spirit and then pour that out upon you guys on Sunday morning, he just gets rid of more of that junk and more of that junk and more of that junk. Like streams of living water just flowing through us. And while you may not have this very same platform, you do have the same opportunity. That as you leave this place with the word of God poured into your heart, believing fully that it's got the power of life right there, the power of life contained within those words, that you would have that same urgency. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. We don't know that there is going to be a tomorrow. So we would just be a people on fire to just say, I will use everything that I have today. Father God, ring me out today. Leave me wore out and emptied today so that I come to you tomorrow as an empty vessel and say, God, fill me or I've got nothing. Because the stuff that I do have is trash. It's years of trash and junk and my own empty, stupid thoughts. So it's with that spirit that we come to God's word this morning. So go ahead and stand to your feet as we read from Mark's gospel, the first chapter. We're going to read verses 4 through 11. <clears throat> John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for the repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when they had, he had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. All God's people said? Amen. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? And then, Father, as I see that gulf which exists between your holiness, your righteousness, and my filth, would you graciously show me my Savior? For it is only by him that I may call you Father. Would you make this book live to me? It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So last week, we discussed the baptism of John. John that baptized John the Baptist. 
This man that had been chosen by God before the very beginnings of time, that had been filled with God's spirit even from within his mother's womb. And how John's message was one that was very straightforward and very clear. Confess your sins, repent of your sins, be baptized for the cleansing of your sins. And John had an incredible ministry. People were coming from all around Jerusalem, all around Judea, Jewish people. This was a real transformative moment. No longer were you just admitted into the family of God based solely on bloodlines, based on the family that you were born into or the nation that you were born into, but that without repentance, the promises to Father Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, all the good gifts that were promised to him, they were meaningless to you. And yet as successful as John's ministry was and as many people had come out to him, he made very clear, I'm just a messenger. I'm just a pointer. He that is of so much greater, greater power than me so much holier than I that I'm not even fit to touch his feet. He is coming. And when he comes, he will no longer just baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so we asked three questions last week. One of them was, what does it mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? And as we opened God's word, what we found is that just as John had foretold, Jesus promised, and as he went to be with the Father, as he was crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to be with the Father, that he poured out his Holy Spirit upon those that were his. He poured out his Holy Spirit that they would be baptized, they would be filled, they would be strengthened, they would be equipped, they would be empowered, they would be brought to new life, they would be used of God in that way, that at that moment of regeneration, at that moment when God brings us from death to life, at that moment when we cry out in faith and turn in repentance, at that very moment we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. That within God's kingdom, there are no spiritual haves and spiritual have-nots. That all of God's children, all of those that have called on the name of the Lord and thereby been saved, have been filled with the Holy Spirit and will be used of God within his kingdom. We didn't get to the next two questions. So it's my hope that we will get to those two today and find out where God leads us next week. I can promise you we're not getting through all this text today. But question number two is this. How does the baptism of the Holy Spirit relate to the believer's baptism, which takes place in these waters here behind me? Question number three, which is always a good question to ask, but it should always be the last question we ask. What do we do about it? Don't get in a rush to figure out what you do about it until you know what happened. Right? You can't actu accurately change your life. You can't safely make any application to your life until you know exactly what it is that God has actually done. And so before we wade back into these waters, so to speak, I believe it's an incumbent upon me to make sure that you recognize that baptism is a gift of God intended to bring unity. I read to you this text last week out of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belonged to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, baptism as given to us by God is meant to be a thing which unites. It unites us to Christ and it unites us together. It is the front door. It is a pathway by which you come to become a member of the church, by which you're joined together with the church. It's an incredible gift from God meant to build unity. And yet, there are very few things within all of Christendom which seem to separate like the topic of baptism. People break fellowship, people part ways, people come to matters of life and death. We have people that have gone before us that have literally laid down their lives over the topic of baptism. And so my encouragement to you is to recognize that this is a gift from God meant to unify us as the body, meant to tie us together to him. And so as a people that desires unity, we've really got a couple of, a couple of opportunities. 
couple of choices when it comes to dealing with the topic of baptism. Option number one is we can speak with great humility and yet at the same time incredible boldness where God is clear in his word. Option number two, we can just avoid the topic altogether. But you see, church, this is such an important thing that we can't, we can't merely gloss over it and we can't avoid it. Here's the thing. Baptism is one of only two ordinances given to us by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Such great urgency, of, of such, such great importance that we, we can't, we can't simply, simply gloss over it. And so I feel like it's, it becomes my job then to make certain that we not only understand what does God's word say about the ordinances, but how are we to hold them in the proper reverence and respect? How do we relate to them? I pray that if you've been here over these last 15 months, you've seen the way that I've tried to point you back time and time and time again to a right heart, to a sense of love and respect and obedience towards what it is that happens in the Lord's table. Not only through the way that we take the supper, but the way that we speak about the supper, the way that we teach about the supper. Because word words have incredible power to change the way that we relate to things. And yet I'm afraid that I've failed you with regards to baptism. I don't know that I've elevated baptism quite to the place in which God would have it be in our life. I certainly haven't ever taught on baptism except for last week. So I need you to forgive me in that, but it's my hope that as we walk through these texts and many other like it, that we'll come to have a right understanding of what baptism is meant to be and that you will find it to be a much richer, much deeper, much more meaningful experience for you and for our church as a corporate body. And so we return to the text and what we read in verse 9 this morning. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those days. In what days? In the days when John was baptizing. Now, we, we don't know for certain what year it was, but there's some context clues there. If we look to Luke 3, what we see is that it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So depending on how we, how we believe the years of Tiberius Caesar to have started, did it start when he kind of became the co-regent, the co-Caesar? That would have been the year 11. Did it begin when... Caesar Augustus died, and Tiberius became the only man. That would have been the year 14. You had 15 years to that, and we're somewhere between the years 26 and 29 AD. That's the time that we're looking at here. Most people smarter than me, more faithful than me, they lean towards 29, so that's where I go. Haven't had time to research it. You don't know how badly it kills me that I didn't get to spend 30 hours this week researching it, but I'm going to go with 29 AD as the year. We also know from that very same chapter in Luke that Jesus was about 30 years old at the time he began his ministry. So those days was about the year 29, and it was the time when Jesus was about 30 years old. Now, this is the very first public appearance of Jesus in the book of Mark. And you remember I told you two weeks ago that it seems very likely that Mark was the first gospel that was written. And so what we have is in the first gospel that is written, in the very first public appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we come to his baptism. Again, pointing to how very crucial this, this matter was. He didn't start at the birth like, uh, like Luke or Matthew. He didn't start before the beginning of time like John. Mark didn't talk about Jesus being presented in the temple. He didn't talk about his time as a 12-year-old boy there, uh, amazing people with his knowledge of the scriptures in the temple. He didn't talk about anything. He fast-forwards immediately right here to the baptism. That shows you how foundational, how crucial Mark believes the baptism was to rightly understanding what it was that Jesus came to do. What it meant for Jesus to be Lord and Savior as the Son of God. And so we see here that Jesus is 30 years old. And again, we don't know a whole lot. Even if we include the other, even if we include the other Gospels, we don't know a whole lot about what happened over these 30 years. Right? We know that we know where he was born. We know who he was born to. 
We know that he and his family did, in fact, flee to Egypt. We know that they came back, that they settled in Nazareth. We know that, we know that he was presented in the temple as a boy. We know he was circumcised at the age of eight. We know that at the, at the not the age of eight, excuse me, eight days old. Ouchie. Um, we, we know that at, at 12 years old, he was there in the temple in his father's house, and he was, he was preaching, he was teaching. But again, we, we know that he has some brothers and sisters. We know from... We know from Mark 6 that he was a carpenter. We know from Matthew 13 that he learned that trade from his father. We don't know for sure, but it seems like maybe his father might have died because we don't, we don't hear anything about Joseph after that time when Jesus was 12. And so perhaps his father died right about that time. And that's why there on the cross, Jesus looked to John, the apostle John, and said, please take care. Here's behold your mother. Take care of Mary. But that, that's really very little to know about, man. It's the king of the world. And for 30 years, essentially what we know is he was a dude, a good, faithful Jew that had some brothers and sisters and maybe a single mother and was a carpenter. That's, that's not a lot. We know that he came from an obscure town called Nazareth. So obscure is Nazareth that we don't read about him anywhere in the Old Testament. We don't read about him anywhere in any ancient literature that we can find. All the Talmud doesn't mention Nazareth. Nowhere do we read about Nazareth in any literature before this point. It's an obscure town. He really was. By all outward appearances, from human eyes, a nobody guy from a nobody town. And then he comes. Now we do know that Mary and Elizabeth, that, that Jesus' mother Mary and John the Baptist's mother Elizabeth, we do know that they were related. We also know that they had interacted with each other to some degree. We know that that the very same angel that came to Mary, Gabriel, and revealed to her that she was pregnant with Jesus, that that same angel had gone to Elizabeth first. And we know that, that Mary, that when she had heard this news, she was informed that her cousin or her second cousin or whoever she was, her relative Elizabeth, was six months further along. What an interesting detail. And yet God's chosen in his word to tell us that she was six months further along. Now, I've obviously never been pregnant, but I do remember with great fondness those times when my wife would get pregnant and it seemed like everybody else got pregnant at the same time. You know the jokes, right? It seemed, like, it seemed like babies come in waves, and so that's what would happen. Somebody would get pregnant, and everybody would say, don't drink the coffee in the young adult class, or everybody's going to end up pregnant. But it, there was something so special and so fun about, about these wives as they're, they're carrying her along to different stages. They're talking about what foods make them sick and what foods don't. They're anticipating what's the baby going to look like. They're, they're arguing over who gets to pick this really trendy name and who has to stay away from it. But you see this, and then, then to watch the children grow up together, to watch them as they, they learn to use their pinchers and pick up goldfish for the first time. They learn to crawl. It's just exciting. It's a special time. And so we don't know exactly how much time Mary and Elizabeth spent together, but we do know that they interacted during their pregnancy. We know that, uh, that Mary came to see Elizabeth after Gabriel had left her, and we know that when she came into the presence of, of Elizabeth, that because John had been filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, that he, he bust a flip in there. And we know that then Elizabeth looks and says, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Not the fruit of the loom, the fruit of the womb. Blessed is the, is the fruit of your womb here. And so miraculously, right, Elizabeth and her baby John both know that it's the Lord that's within Mary's, Mary's belly. We know that Jesus grew with great favor and strength before God and before man. We know that he was utterly sinless. It was he that knew no sin. Could you imagine a child that never, never once disobeys, never once rolls his eyes, never once is, delays his obedience? Never once has a, has a crummy attitude. Never once at any moment does he do any, even a, even a faulty thought. That throughout his entire life, he was perfectly righteous at every single point. We know at the same time that John the Baptist was not a normal kid. We know that he was one that, 
had been filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, we know, from before birth. We know that he had great zeal for the Lord. We know that he went out into the wilderness. He wore camel-haired clothing. We know that he ate this very strange diet. And so you can imagine these interactions at their family picnics when Mary asked Elizabeth, well, Elizabeth, how is little John doing? And she says, strange? That kid is just strange? Mary, how is Jesus? He's perfect. She wasn't lying. He was perfect at every point, in every way, perfect. So these two second cousins or third cousins, cousins, we see them meet together here at these baptismal waters. The only time in Scripture that they show them together, they show them interacting through messengers, but the only time within Scripture that we see them there together. And Mark is shockingly simple in his narrative. Jesus was baptized by John. That's it. No explanation, nothing further. But why on earth would Jesus need to be baptized? Remember now, what was John's message? Repent of your sins. Confess your sins. Be baptized for the cleansing of your sins. He's, 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 he's pushing people up against confessing their sins. Now here comes he that knew no sin, coming and partaking in this baptism of repentance. The man that was perfect, that had never known sin, and never committed a sin. Why would he do this, and why would he do it publicly? If he decided he wanted to be baptized, why wouldn't he have grabbed John and said, hey, let's go do a private ceremony somewhere? Because you know that people were going to be confused. You know it was going to send mixed signals to people. The idea that here's Jesus that would someday re reveal to the whole world that he was, in fact, the perfect Lamb of God. And here he is, and he's being baptized along with a bunch of sinners. But this, again, it shows you how crucial this was, that God wouldn't draw back from this. That this would be a part of what he calls his son to do, that he would go forward and be baptized right there by John, right there in that river, just like all the rest of repentant, sinful Judea. So there's plenty of theories about why this would have happened. There's a group that says that, you know, the reason that Jesus was baptized is because his mother and his brothers pushed him to do it. It seems very far-fetched. There's another group that says, you know, the reason Jesus went out to John like this to be baptized was because he wanted to legitimize John's ministry. John didn't need that. Number one, people were already coming out to John in droves. Number two, John's only purpose was to point back to Jesus. He didn't need Jesus to come and say, hey, he's the real deal. There's another group that says, you know, what he was doing was he was undergoing a ceremonial cleansing, a ritual bath, much like priests that enter into their ministry in preparation for his ministry. There's another group that says, no, you know, what he was doing was he was trying to relate to Gentiles. Remember last week we talked about proselyte baptism, how in order for those that were outside of the family of God to become a Jew, they needed to be circumcised and they needed to be cleansed. So there's people that say that, no, what he was doing here was showing that he was relating to the Gentiles. And you see, in all those answers, those would pass for Sunday school answers, right? Those don't sound particularly heretical. Those don't sound particularly unbiblical. And those are the kind of things you can throw around in a casual conversation. That's what people like to do, right? They like to say, well, I like to think. Nobody cares what you think. And that's where we're so incredibly blessed to have multiple records of Jesus' life. So if you look at Matthew 3, we read this in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He says, no way, Jesus. I'm not going to baptize you. You're perfect. You're sinless. Why would I baptize you? You need to baptize me. It reminds us a lot of Peter there in the upper room when Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't need to be washing our feet. Or, or even Peter resisting Jesus going to the cross. And clearly, John knew exactly who he was. We're in the book of John that when he was coming, that John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. John knew exactly who this was and exactly what he came to do. And yet, interestingly, 
You read a little bit later in that very same gospel, it says that John didn't know Jesus. I don't know what that means other than maybe they hadn't been together a lot. Maybe there hadn't been a lot of, and so he didn't recognize the man Jesus, and yet by the power of that Holy Spirit that was within him, he knew this is the lamb. This is the one. This is the perfect, sinless, stain-free lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. I need you to contrast this with the way in which John related to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They came out, he called them a brutal vipers, and basically refused to baptize them. Why? Because they refused to repent. Their hearts weren't right. They wanted to flee from the wrath of God, sure, but they never wanted any change within themselves. They never wanted to confess their sin because they believed they were the holy guys. They were the right guys. Now, on the flip side of that, you've got them refusing to baptize Jesus because Jesus is too holy. Because he has no business stepping into these filthy waters. But Jesus replies in Matthew three fifteen. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the real answer. To fulfill all righteousness. How would this Lamb of God take away the sins of the world? He would fulfill all righteousness. Whatever righteousness demanded, whatever righteousness demanded, Jesus would do. And this is so key, church. Understanding that Jesus did not just live a passive life. He didn't just live a life in which he tried to not step in it. He actively pursued righteousness. From his circumcision at the age of eight, years, uh, eight days old, all the way to his crucifixion. Everything that law and love demanded, Jesus would do. At great personal cost to himself, I will fulfill all righteousness. For so much of my life, I've struggled with this understanding of what does it mean for Jesus' righteousness to be imputed to us, to be given to us. And yet, when we look back at what God's covenants with man are, they're, they're really, it, it's fairly easy to sync them up. It's fairly easy to, to, to sum them up like this. God made very clear to man, obedience, honoring me, Worshiping me will bring with it life and blessing. Dishonoring me, diso uh, dis uh, disobeying me will, br will bring with it death and curse. It's as simple as that. And yet every single man chooses death and curse. Every single one has chosen death and curse. And because God is not just a just and righteous God, because he's also merciful and loving, he saw fit before the beginning of time that he would send this lamb. This new kind of man, this second Adam, this God-man that would come and fulfill all righteousness. Not only doing all the things that God commands to be done, not only avoiding all the things that God says to avoid, but then paying the price within himself. He would doubly fulfill the covenant, not only in doing all that was supposed to be done to fulfill it, but taking that curse upon himself. That's what it means when he says, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. And he does it here in a very public way. By taking to the waters that had been so, so corrupted by the sins of the people that would come into it. By doing ex exactly what God had commanded John to go out and do and baptizing these sinners and, and yet bathing himself in these waters that had just been made filthy by the sins of men. Listen to the words of Sin Sinclair Ferguson. He says it beautifully. He's talking about the baptism. He says, right there at the baptism already, Jesus indicates how we become our Savior. By standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by sins to be poured over his perfect body. Were any of you poor enough that you had to share bath waters with your siblings? I was the oldest kid, so I got to go first. But there's something disgusting about getting in used, tepid bath water. Other people's filth. 
How much more disgusting for the perfect son of God, he who knew no sin, to allow himself to be plunged beneath the water so stained by filthy sinners. Not only associating with sinners, but his evidence that he was taking that sin upon himself. The mystery. No man would make this kind of thing up. Who would think of such a thing? That the perfect son of God would come to these filthy waters and allow himself to be baptized. Allow people to be confused about what it is that he had come to do. And so, with regards to these waters here, it is very right. And it is very good for us to look to these waters and view them as a symbolic washing away of our sin. As a cleansing of our sin. As our sin that we have been so in love with over all these years that that sin would be attached to Jesus. To he that was also baptized. That's why Acts 22, we read, Paul says this. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Excuse me, cough drop break. But it doesn't stop there. This isn't just about the cleansing of sin. This is where it gets really exciting for me. Because what you begin to see as you read through Scripture is that the picture here, it wasn't just about, wasn't just about the cleansing of sin. It wasn't just about Jesus taking that sin upon himself, but it pointed forward to the way in which he would actually deal with our sin. If you read in Mark 10, 38 through 40, we read this. So, so let, me, let me set the stage here. So John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they've come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, would you put us at your right hand and your left hand when you come into the kingdom? Would you bring us into glory with you, and would you put us into positions of honor within your kingdom? And this is Jesus' response. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am going to be baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is of those but it is for those of whom it has been prepared. So listen, the cup now is talking about the cup of God's wrath. This cup that I'm about to drink. He's saying, I'm going to drink the fullness of God's cup of his wrath. I'm going to satisfy it. That's what it means when he says it is finished. He has drunk down the fullness of God's wrath. And so when he says to James and John, or, uh, uh, yeah, John and James, he says, listen, you're going to undergo this. No, they weren't going to drink down the cup of God's wrath in fullness. They couldn't do it. They weren't the son of God. He was saying, you too will pay. You too will suffer. You too will sacrifice if you're going to come after me. But look what he says here. He starts talking about baptism. He uses the word six times. Be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in. Was Jesus going to be rebaptized? No. He was pointing forward to his death, his burial, his resurrection. He was painting a very clear picture here in his word. He was talking about his crucifixion as a bapto, as a baptizo, as a baptism. He's saying that when you look to my death, when you look to my resurrection, you need to recognize that as yet another baptism. That's another picture that happens here in this baptistry, is that you're, you're, you're tying together not just Jesus' first public act of righteousness, but his last. Not just his, not just his dunking beneath the stain-filled waters, but his rising again in glory. He's tying these two things together in a very real way here. That when we look to these waters, we not only see our spiritual cleansing, but we see the way in which we would be cleansed. That's why it's so very appropriate that we have that cross above these waters. Because without the cross, the waters are worthless. 
You need to understand that, that Jesus knew full well when he was plunged beneath those waters in his baptism, he knew well that the march towards the cross was on. He knew that this was just the beginning of something greater. He knew that he was showing them, this is what righteousness looks like. This is me taking your sin upon myself, but watch what I do in the days to come. Pointing forward so that we may understand that that's what those waters are about. Not just cleansing, but being united with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Check this out. In 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, we read this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience, waiting in those days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So I ask you, for this moment, don't focus too much on his descending and preaching to the spirits and God's perfect timing. We will come back to that text, but you need to see what he's saying. He begins by pointing forward to the suffering. He's talking again about the drinking down of the wrath of death. The payment of sin. He's talking about Jesus suffering and, and, and drinking that cup. Then he goes on to talk about the waters of Noah. What you'll find in Scripture is that very often God saves his people through water. You think about Jonah and the whale. You think about Noah and the ark. You think about his people crossing through the Red Sea. Time after time after time after time, God is saving his people. He is showing his judgment upon wicked and saving his people through these waters. So that in this instance... He's pointing forward and he's saying only those that would come through the water, they would only be those that are found in the Savior. In this case, the ark represents the Savior. And that those that are found in the Savior through, this, through these waters, that they would be saved. He goes on to say that with this baptism that corresponds to it, that through your baptism, you are saved. Baptism now saves you. say that baptism now saves you how long can we sit here uncomfortably I was waiting to see how many southern Baptists were going to fall out baptism now saves you. So John Piper talks about it like this. He has a beautiful analogy. And he talks about a wedding. In the old days, not so much in the new days, but in the old days, one of the things that a priest would have the couple say to each other is, with this ring, I thee wed. With this ring, I now marry you. And yet, we all know that the wedding ring is not what makes you married. There's plenty of people within this room that you've either lost your wedding ring, you can't wear it because of work, doesn't fit anymore, whatever it is, you don't wear a wedding ring and yet you're still every bit married. Just as married as you would have been before. And yet in a very real sense, it is right to say, with this ring, I thee wed. So we do well to remember that at this time, there was nobody that was going forward and asking baptism. The cost of baptism was too great. The cost of publicly revealing yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ was too great. So great that no man would ever dare undergo it and yes, he hadn't, unless he had, in fact, repented, believed, and been saved. So much so that it was safe to say that with this baptism, you are saved. 
because baptism was so closely tied to faith and belief and trust and change. But see, here's the problem. We've removed all cost of baptism. We're just in a rush to get people into the water. How many people can you baptize this year? How, many, how quickly can you get people into the baptistry waters? There's no price to be paid whatsoever. If you can just get you to say the right prayer, we'll hurry up and dunk you. And we happen to live in a nation where there's absolutely no cost to be paid for following Christ. We're not persecuted to any degree. In fact, people look favorably upon us, right? Because we can just mix in a little bit of Jesus with the rest of our life like everybody else, and then we're viewed as a decent person. And so because there's no cost at all to be paid, we have taken that which God joined together, and we've completely divorced it. That true salvation, that true faith, that true trust, that true repentance, that the washing of the Holy Spirit completely divorced from water baptism. It all just becomes an act. just becomes a play acting. Look at me. I'm playing Jesus in the play today as I'm buried with him and raised with him. And he says, no, you're found in him in that baptism. You understand? He's saying that this thing that I've joined together, so closely together that it is right for my apostles to say, repent, believe, be saved, be baptized. Because you're really in it if you step forward in this day and age. First century Jerusalem to step forward and say, I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy. God is one. God is not three. And yet we get it all twisted up in our little minds because we've turned it into something that it's absolutely not meant to be. And yet some people take this too far. I speak specifically of the Roman Catholics. Now here's the thing though, right? Many of us Southern Baptists, we've grown up with this caricature of what Catholics believe. This cartoon picture of what it means to be a, to be a, a Catholic. And so I tread very lightly on this. I do my best to understand what is it that these other faiths believe. And as best I can tell, as faithfully as I can preach it, I believe that what they teach is that baptism is in and of itself an instrumental cause of grace. The fancy Latin word is ex opere operato. It means by the working of the work. What Catholics believe, as best I can tell, is that a sacrament when rightly administered, in this case baptism, that baptism when carried out by the right person with the right elements in the right way, it is guaranteed to bring grace upon that person that is baptized, regardless of the position of their heart, regardless of whether or not they have any level of faith. In fact, all they have to do is be open to receiving God's grace. As long as they're not resistant to God's grace, then when they are plunged beneath that water by the right guy in the right way with the right words, that grace is guaranteed to be imparted to that person. The reason that they believe this is not that far-fetched. This is probably the point at which I must insert my obligatory, I don't believe they're right. But here's what they believe, and here's why they believe this is so. They believe that grace comes as a gift of God. That man cannot manufacture grace. That man cannot earn grace. That there's nothing within man that could warrant them to receive God's grace. That grace is all a gift of God. And because man cannot manufacture grace, then surely, just like all the other covenant signs, this one is all in the hands of God. It doesn't matter, therefore, in their eyes, and this is where they go too far, it doesn't matter, therefore, in their eyes, whether you have faith or not. Because God's going to give grace to who God's going to give grace to. This is why they baptize babies. Understanding that we're all naturally sinners. So to them, they say, you know what? My baby's a sinner, and yet surely my baby's not resistant to the grace of God, so I can have them baptized, therefore grace, grace comes upon them. But we don't have that option, because if we believe the words of Scripture that says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Yes, it is all God's grace, but it is through faith. You want to talk about the instrument through which God gets his grace to you? It's through faith. And that faith 
It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So that ultimately, yes, it is all God's working, but that faith must be there. It is from God's grace that he gives you the faith to reach out and receive more of his grace. You see this? From start to finish, it's God's work in your life bringing you to this point. So what I say is I look over to my Catholic brothers and sisters, sisters or the Episcopalians or whoever else it is that baptizes babies. What I tell them is what you are doing, not only is this not an act of grace in the life of your child because they don't have faith, they don't have the ability to reach out and receive that grace, but in addition to that, what has happened is you cause great confusion so that when they look back upon their life, they believe they're saved because they were baptized one time way back then. I pray you've heard that in my teaching even in this church because you see, what we've done at times is, while we don't look to baptism as the saving act, we look at this made-up prayer as the saving act. We just replace baptism with a prayer. Say these magic words and you'll be saved. So to the pastor instead of a preach, preacher, no, a pastor instead of a priest, we lead people to say these words and then magically, ta-da, free grace. Doesn't matter what your heart's like. Doesn't matter if you have faith which actually transform your life. If we can just get you to do these things and grace will be poured out on you. And yet we read in God's word, Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. He doesn't say whoever isn't baptized will be condemned. He says whoever doesn't believe. Colossians 2, 11 through 12, in him we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, it's all about this faith. It's about this, do you have this faith in Christ? And if you do, then what this is being evidenced of right here in this water is that you have been buried with him in your faith, literally linked up with Christ, an incredible mystery that somehow you are with him in his death. You are with him in his resurrection. You will come with him into his glory. And that minus that, all you're doing is taking a public bath, and public baths are creepy. But at the same time, I'm afraid what's happened is, because we understand this, and because we're so afraid of Rome, we're so afraid of Catholicism, that again, we've completely divorced these things. So much so that we look to this water and we go, don't look there, no grace there, no grace there, nuh-uh, there's no grace to be had in those waters. All that happens there is a skit. All that happens there is a play. All that happens there is a statement. There's no way God could ever impart any kind of grace there in those waters. Why? Why? Can God not meet you at the table? You don't think he can meet you in those waters? Think about it. You don't, have to, you don't have to read your Bible every day to be saved. You don't have to pray every morning to be saved. You don't have to come to church 52 weeks, Sundays a year to be saved. And yet at the same time, is there a one of you that would claim that when we read God's word, it's just empty words? No. By the power of the Spirit, when we preach God's word, when we read God's word, it's guaranteed to bring about that which it is supposed to. That it would penetrate your heart and hit the mark. That you would be changed. It's not just empty words. Not in the power of the Spirit, it's not. Just as prayer. Prayer is not just talking to the ceiling. For those that are filled with faith, for those that have been regenerated, for those that are anew, it's communion between Father and His children. Literally, He's hearing us. He's responding to us. Same thing as we gather together in this place. Because here's the thing, church. God didn't just make us as spirits. We are both spirit and body. God ministers to your body. He ministers to your spirit. And he can do incredible things in those waters. Again, that's not where salvation happens. It's not right for you to undergo baptism. Have you not been saved? Have you not already been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you not already been cleansed? But those things are so closely tied together that when you come into that water with a right mind of faith, with a heart of faith, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, it can be an incredible blessing for you. Not only the one that's dunked under the water, but the one doing the dunking. I told you every time I've done it, every time I baptize somebody, I'm shaking in my boots. I'm in such anticipation of what is God going to do in this moment. It's an act of grace for me to participate. The guy is working in my life, is one filled with the Spirit, is one that knows him. He's ministering to me in a very real way. And you, as those that observe it, God can be gracious to you in that moment. He can strengthen you for the battles. He can sanctify you. He can bring you to a deeper understanding, deeper fellowship. All these things can happen. And no, we're not saved in that moment. But can you be strengthened in your faith? Yes. So that's my prayer for us, church. Is that we do the same thing with the water that we've done with the table. We don't get it twisted into thinking there's some magic in the bread, there's some magic in the wine. That's regular tap water that we put in there. That's not the moment of your salvation. That's not a guarantee of grace. But when a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, one that is trusted, turned to him and is following after him, filled with his spirit, looks lovingly to their father and says, Father, I do this in obedience to you. I do this as my first act of discipleship. The beginning of discipleship, a life of discipleship. Dear friends, God can do amazing things. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for the gift of baptism. We thank you for the unity that's intended to be found there. And yet, Father, it is without a shadow of a doubt that there's some within this room right this moment that are anxious. We're treading into deep waters, so to speak. Oftentimes, we've allowed our own traditions to overcome Scripture. So, Father, may we be united by your word. May we be united by a desire to see you glorified as disciples. Those that have been given grace we don't deserve. Those that have been brought to faith we could not muster. Father God, may we be unified by that truth. And, Father, the next time we gather together, to observe baptism. Father God, may we no longer rob ourselves of the beauty that happens there. May we no longer view it as just a skit or an act or a play or a statement, but may we recognize it in a very real way, Father, in those waters, you will meet us there. Father, if there's one here this morning that's not yet been transformed by the power of your spirit, that is my prayer. If there's one that's not yet trusted in Jesus Christ and turned from themselves, they don't have it in themselves. None of us did. None of us do. We pray, Father, that you would stir in their heart, that you would bring them to life. For it's in your son's precious name we pray.